Listen to the word of the Lord from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. This is the word of the Lord. So last week, we titled the sermon, God's People Sing, and we just quick hit eight points, or I thought it was quick, maybe 35 minutes is, short, is, is long to you, but it's short to me. We just quick hit eight major points on the place of music in the history of the church, or in the church, the life of the church, and then this one I'm calling part two, the worship wars. Oh, the dreaded worship wars. Do you know what I'm talking about with the worship wars? where each new generation seems to think the next generation is a bunch of idiots, and then the young generation looks down on the older ones as their old sticks in the mud and grumpy, and we get all up in our pride and reject each other, and it's just a lot of stupid nonsense in Jesus' name, and we really need to repent. So here's a whole sermon where I want to lay down some things and hopefully catch us up to speed on how we got here. I will try to speak quickly. Galatians chapter 4, we read in verse four and f- verses 4 and 5, Paul says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under law, to redeem those who were under law, so that we might receive the adoption as sons. Have you ever wondered what all is meant by the phrase, in the fullness of time. In the fullness of time, when everything was ready, when the stage was set, finally Jesus appeared. He could have appeared before, but apparently things were not ready. He could have appeared later, but it would have been too late. But something about exactly when Jesus showed up was the fullness of time. I remember my professors in college and seminary posing theories to answer the question, what made it the fullness of time? This is what they said. About 300 years before Jesus, a man named Alexander the Great conquered the known world, and he spread his culture and language over the whole world. He spread the Greek language and the Greek culture everywhere. Then it became the Roman Empire eventually, And Rome continued to add more and more land, more and more nations under their rulership. And while it might have been hard to live under Roman rule, it also bestowed certain advantages. Advantages like Rome would kill you if you were their enemy. So there tended to be a lot of peace in the the kingdom. Because if you lift your head and say, no, then you get it cut off. So there was Roman peace. There was Roman roads. Roman roads, because every time they took control of a new land, they said, hey, they make these products. In order to get these products back to where we live, we better build roads and set up little groups of soldiers to kill anyone who causes trouble or tries to steal. And they call this the Pax Romana. Ever heard of this phrase, the Pax Romana? The Roman peace. So Roman peace came with Well, eventually it was Latin. It started with, under Alexander, everyone spoke Greek. At the time of Paul and the apostles, everyone spoke Greek. Eventually, as it continued to spread west, Latin became the language. 
But where we are in the writing of the New Testament, Greek, but Roman, Roman roads, Roman peace, and the Roman culture. And there was finally a common lingua franca. You've heard this expression? What money do you have to talk to do business? You better speak the language of the empire if you're going to do business. Now you got Roman roads. Now you got one language that even though it's not your native language, you know how to speak it. And so my teachers in college said, Koine Greek. The New Testament was written in Koine Greek. There's common Greek, the regular people would speak. The uneducated normal folk would speak Koine Greek. But then there was high poetic Greek that the poets would speak and the philosophers would speak. The New Testament was not written in the special Greek. It was written in the common Greek. It was not written in the beautiful language of the poets. It was written in the y'all, ain't, bad grammar Greek of the rest of us, the normal folk. So at just the right time, when there's a common language over the entire known world and a system of roads, a means by which to spread culture and language everywhere, Jesus shows up. In the center of a centrally located kingdom that is right in the middle of all the trade routes. Interesting. So what happened was as Jesus, the message of Jesus was spread everywhere through this common language and these common roads and this interconnected system of multiculturalism, but they had one language because they had to do business with Rome. As, as it was spread everywhere, people would take Jesus into their own culture and you would see a new expression of what it is to follow Jesus. St. Augustine, a pastor in the 300s to early 400s in North Africa, he complained because his people would visit other Christians in other cities, and then they would come back and complain. Hey, when we visited their church, they worshiped like this, and we really liked it. We should do that here. And of course, when your people come to you and tell you they like it better somewhere else, it lands on you as an insult. And instead of going, that's a great idea, he goes, shut up and sit down. And it frustrated him. But it shows you that each place the gospel landed, there was innovation. Because if you meet Jesus and you really know him and you follow him to the best of your ability, how many of you know, even if you're trying to do it like other people, you won't. Right? When I try to sing like somebody, I still end up sounding like me, mostly. And there's nothing wrong with that. You can't help but put your own fingerprints and your own voice on a thing. And so as Christianity spread, we saw new versions of what Christianity looks like, even though they tried really hard to control and make the worship the same everywhere. It's just impossible. So eventually, like I said, as it spread west, who's still with me, by the way? Okay. As it spread west, the language switched to Latin. Now, fast forward to like the 14th, 1400s and 1500s, and you're in Europe. Let's say you're in Germany. Let's say you're in Germany and you go to church. Unless you've been to school at like graduate level institutions, do you speak Latin? No, what do you speak? You speak German. Let me ask you this, was there even a Bible translated into German yet? No. And when you go to church, what language is the priest speaking? Latin. So when you go to church, do you understand the sermon? No. no. 
When he stands and he reads from the scripture in Latin with no translation, do you know what he's talking about? How weird is that? And it's like that in the whole world. The whole Catholic Church was worshiping in Latin in every country. The whole Orthodox, Greek Orthodox Church, right? Rome over the West, Constantinople over the East, they're worshiping in Greek. Latin and Greek. It's too much history. I'm summarizing. This is the, we just hit 1,500 years in like 10 minutes. So there's way more I could say, but I'm not going to today. So you're in Germany. You don't know what the priest is saying. How many of you know that the gospel is the power of God for everyone who believes? How can you believe what you don't understand? Who's with me? So now you go to church, and instead of hearing the gospel and understanding the gospel and knowing God, you think going to church saves you. What else conclusion could you draw? You think eating the bread and the wine saves you. You think putting money in the plate saves you. You didn't even know what was going on, but at one point in the service, the priest would ring a bell. Ping. And then you'd go, oh, now that bread is Jesus. Now that wine is Jesus. Do you know the point of stained glass windows? The stained glass windows were the only Bible that you ever read. Because you can read that story. Oh, look, it's Abraham offering Isaac on the mountaintop. And look, there's a, there, oh, there's a ram caught in a bush over there. That was the only Bible you ever read was the stained glass window. That was the uh, Eugene Peterson's The Message of the Day. And there was no other Bible for you, unless you learned Latin. So fast forward. But let me just ask this. Is Latin sacred? Is something special and spiritual about Latin? Is there, is there something spiritual about Greek? Is there, is there something spiritual about Hebrew? Some of you are going to say yes because you're wrong. Is there something spiritual about Aramaic, the language Jesus grew up talking? Some of you want to say yes, but you're wrong. God will talk whatever language the people he's trying to talk to are talking. Right? He's, he speaks all languages, right? When the Spirit's poured out in Acts chapter 2, boom, all the languages get inspired by the Holy Spirit. But some of us, man, we got weird ideas. Oh, oh, Latin was so sacred. Only Latin is worthy of God. Why? Because we've always spoken Latin in church. How dare you try to... Ugh. The idea of translating into the language of the common people. We might as well throw manure at the people while we're at it. Horrible. Are you, are you catching what I'm saying? How silly this gets. Okay. So, is the Bible translatable to other languages? Did you know the Quran is not translatable? It's Muslim doctrine that if you translate the Quran, it is no longer inspired or authoritative. You're not allowed to translate it. 
It's too pure. It was given to us. It was dictated to us in, in that exact phraseology, and to translate it is to defile it. The Bible has the exact opposite mindset. Do you know why? Please say, Tim, I know why. It's because of the incarnation of Jesus. It's because God became one of us. He became one of us. He became one of us to reveal God to us so we could be redeemed. And then the early church knew that it was their job to become one of those other people so that they might have God revealed to them. That the, that the principle of the incarnation demands the Bible be translated into your language and culture and your language and culture and your language and culture and your language and culture. That we're not being faithful if we don't put your language and culture on Jesus. Go for it. Yes, God is so about relating to his people where they are, wherever he finds us. John Calvin said that God lisps and speaks baby talk. Just like we stoop down to a baby, we talk baby talk. Not because we think the baby's an idiot, hopefully. It's a sign of affection that we adapt our language to simpler forms so that the baby can understand us. And God has to do that every time he talks to any of us because the smartest of us relative to him is absurdly simplistic. Okay, so that's a lot of ground we just covered. The incarnational principle requires that we translate the Bible into the vernacular and language of the people, but the church had gotten to the place in the whole world where it only spoke languages that the people who were worshiping didn't even speak. And I understand how we got there. It's too long of a story, but we got there. So then the gospel starts to come home. Some people start to read the New Testament in the Greek for themselves, and they start to understand it. They start to understand it. And what they understand is, oh my word, God loves us. Jesus died for our sins so that we don't earn our salvation through obedience, but he makes us righteous even though in ourselves we're lost and sinners. And he makes us righteous because Jesus steps into our place and takes our sin off of us, onto himself, kills it, defeats it, and he is raised from the dead and he puts his resurrection life in us. It's a gift. And all we do is say our yes. That's all we do. All we do is say yes. And bam, his righteousness comes inside of us. His spirit comes inside of us. We become new people. We get a brand new nature. We don't earn it. It's all gift. And then boom, things come online and he is our father and we have perfect access. And it's all about what Jesus did and not about what we did. And from here on out, we just rest in that, abide in that. And his spirit lives in and through us and we bear fruit. We change. We're transformed. And the whole Christian life is about children of a father and being living in the grace of God. They get it. And instantly, boom, the church breaks open and breaks away from Roman control and chaos is, uh, is unleashed in Europe and the Holy Roman Empire begins to break down because there was a state church fusion. It begins to break down. Translations of the Bible start to happen in the language of the people. Worship starts to happen in the language of the people. Did you know whenever the Spirit of God moves in power among, on a people, songs are written Every time there's a move of God in history, new songs occur. Of course they do. Of course they do. Because you have to say what you have to say to God with your own heart 
language. Can you say the word heart language with me? Heart language. Every person is in a culture, and that culture has a heart language, a musical heart language. And when you worship God in your own musical heart language, it connects deeper than when you worship God in someone else's heart language. A lot of what we think is the Spirit of God moving in a worship service is actually the worship service being adapted to our cultural heart language. If you have a blended church that has a bunch of different cultures in it, let's say we had a lot of African Americans in here and we started to sing gospel music with a nice choir and some good call and response and some rich harmonies and some good old-fashioned, like, in the deep of the gut, singing, digging in deep to the Spirit, And you might have some of them saying, the Spirit's falling. And some of the other people who want intellectual hymns that are very clear and the meter is not syncopated and there's there's no swing, it's just straight. And they go, we're losing it. And over here, these folk are saying, the Spirit's falling. And these people are saying, we're losing it. And over here is some vineyard-style acoustic guitar finger-picking dude who's like, wants to John Mayer his way into the and he's like, you're losing it. And then he starts singing these little vineyard style John Mayerisms. And, he's, and then these white people are like, oh, with their Birkenstocks, the spirit's falling. And the other people are like, we're losing it. We're losing it. And can you understand that the thing that causes one person to say the spirit of God is falling is the same thing that causes someone else in the room to think we're losing it. The thing that causes you to get filled with the spirit is the thing that quenches the spirit on someone next to you because of cultural heart language. When I showed up at college, they had hymns with a pipe organ. And I was like, why are they speaking the language of people who have been dead for 300 years to kids who don't know any about this? They're not in the car listening to pipe organ and choral music. This is so, nobody's resonating with this at a deep level. And I was offended at the ignorance of the faculty who were setting the trajectory of the chapel culture. That was me as a freshman. Mad at them for being bad missionaries. Why would you not speak in the indigenous cultural heart language of the recipients of the service? Why would you not do that? That's irresponsible for you as leaders. Well, fast forward four years, now I'm a senior. I've lived with pipe organ and hymns for four years, three times a week. Fast forward, it's it's second semester, final year. And we get into the fourth verse of of the song, And Can It Be? And that dude's pumping on the foot pedals in the hands and he's playing with every appendage and he is modulating up a whole step to the, he's jumping up one more key. And I'm telling you, the spirit of God is so thick in the joint. I feel like the the roof is gonna pop off and we're just gonna see the clouds. And then we sing, and can it be that I should gain? Let me, let me just switch to the, to, the, to the verse. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head. And clothed with righteousness divine. Listen to this. Bold I approach 
the eternal throne. And then he's just and claim the crown through Christ my own. Amaze, amazing love. How can, how can it? See the, the, right, the call and response? That thou, my God, shouldst die for me. What in the world? It was like it was Jimi Hendrix in 1969 Woodstock with his stack of marshals turned all the way up to 11, blasting his white Fender Stratocaster as loud as it could go through a fuzz box. That's what it felt like to me senior year. Do you hear what I'm saying? The same thing that in my freshman year offended me and annoyed me and made me say, you idiots, what are you doing? My senior year said, oh, if, you don't, if that don't push your buttons, you ain't got any. Right? If that don't flip your switches, they've been blown. You need a new transistor. What am I saying? I'm saying cultural heart language matters, but you can also learn to speak and understand a new one. Did you know the whole Bible is not remade up when new people come to learn it. We expect you to adapt to learn God's stories. And sometimes it takes a few years of diligent use before it really begins to make sense. But Pastor Tim, the Old Testament's boring. Maybe now, but as you get more filled with the Spirit and as you begin to understand and you set yourself with discipline to learn you fast forward a while, next thing you know, you're like, oh my word, have you read Leviticus 25? Bombs were dropping in my devotional time, Pastor Tim. And I'm like, yeah, tell me what you learned. And then you teach me things. Paul says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win Jews. And to those under the law, I became like I was under the law, though I'm not under the law. And in order to win those under the law, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might save some. So the principle is God became one of us and as the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, we don't take them our culture when we take them Jesus. We're not supposed to, but we have, right? We came, when I went to India, I saw <laughs> white people churches, meaning the buildings look like white people churches. The only place in the whole community where you saw pews, and hymnals was the churches. And they would even, the Bibles were in English. And they had hymnals in them. And I just facepalmed like, what a royal missionary fail. Just reminds me of when Western Europeans came here to this country. And we didn't just try to Christianize the native peoples. We tried to westernize the native peoples. It's one of those things we tend to do. They sure do need us. God bless them. They're so lucky to have us. Yep. Are you still with me or did I lose you? Okay. I lost a few. I could feel. <laughs> In the 1960s, the Catholic Church uh, had a pope who called for a whole meeting of all the leaders to come together. It was Vatican II. And at Vatican II... This is what he said. He said, 
Worship ought to be in the language of the local people who happen to be gathered to worship. This whole thing that we've been doing of only Latin and no one knows what we're even singing and praying and saying is not good. And I'm going, 1960s. Well, better late than never, friends. (laughs) And they said, our services are too dominated by the priests. How about if regular Christians can be involved reading scripture and doing things? That would be good. And I'm like... Now you're, now you're getting what we were trying to say in the, in, in the 16th century. Thanks for killing us. That's great. How do you think people responded when that first generation of reformers read their Bibles, understood the gospel, found life, found Jesus, found forgiveness, found release from all that stuff they were carrying, and then came back and said, guys, guys, look at this. How do you think the... How do you think they were treated? There's a fellow named Isaac Watts. He wrote like, I don't know how many thousands of hymns. When he started to try to write worship songs in his own language and in the language of the people who were gathered with music that made sense to the people of the time, how do you think he was treated? Lots of good, clean fun. Here was the pushback of the people of his time. No, don't edit the document. Just scroll up. Here was the pushback. Our God is so worthy that the only words that can be used to worship him are words that came straight from him. So no original original poems, Isaac, you turd, only Bible. Now, in terms of music, only the music that is sacred, none of these evil pagan. Isaac, I saw what you did. You were using that melody, that melody that they literally use at the pub to sing about bedding women and getting drunk. And you took that melody and you put sacred lyrics to it? You dog. Only the word of God is worthy of God. And only the scripture used with these sacred melodic forms, is worthy of God. So you're worldly, Isaac, you're worldly. And they stood there in the service, mad. You've seen these people. They got their arms crossed. It wouldn't matter if Jesus himself was one leading the worship or singing the songs or preaching or praying. They'd be mad and they'd go home whining. It wouldn't matter. This isn't how it was when I grew up. And by the way, that thing I said about the music being the music from the bars, that's true. That happened. So how how funny is it? How funny is it? Fast forward to right now, and you got people saying, the old hymns we grew up with are God's songs, and they're sacred and holy, and these, these modern worship songs from Bethel and Hill songs and whatever, they're pagan they're, rep- they're repetitive. See, see, pagan. They have drums. Ooh, Africa, pagan. Oh, my word, that's so friggin' racist, y'all. Play a, to play a good, strong beat to any one-year-old or two-year-old, and they begin to dance. You tell me that's pagan? Like the devil made up a, a, a beat, a rhythm? Newsflash, y'all, the devil's not created anything ever. He's never created a single thing in his life 
All he does is try to get us to misuse things God made. Well, but sex was the original sin. No, the first command was be fruitful and multiply. I believe you are mistaken. But, they, but those were the songs. Do you, do you see what happened? It was the new songs of the time. It was the, it was the new song. It was the worldly song that was being adapted. And now it's viewed as the sacred music. Because of pure cultural ignorance and arrogance and pride. But it runs in reverse too, y'all. You can be one of these folk that hates hymns and looks down on churches that use liturgy and hymns. Because you say, well, I don't feel the spirit in that service. Oh, you're culturally arrogant too. You're not judging with a right judgment. You're judging by your feelings and surface matters, not judging from the Lord's perspective. Who the do you think you are to judge the, them? How do you know what's in their heart? How do you, listen, I went to a Catholic church and I felt the spirit of God all over all the liturgy even though I didn't know when to stand and when to sit, and I felt kind of dumb because, they're, oh, I'm late again. I stand up when they all said, oh, my bad. You know, and then I walked up to the front, and he says, are you a Catholic? I said, uh, no, and then he didn't give me the communion and did that, and I was like, hey, and that's not fair. But I felt the Lord the whole time, and I heard some incredible theology. I could feel the spirit in the people who wrote that worship service originally. I went to a Greek Orthodox service, I didn't understand half of what happened there, but I felt the Lord the whole time. And they said, Christ have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy. Probably 60 times it felt like. And you would think, oh no, they must really feel ashamed of themselves. I didn't feel that at all. You know what I felt? They really are confident that there's mercy for sinners. They have a big view of Jesus. I felt the Spirit of God the whole time. Okay, I have a whole sermon I want to preach one of these days called Plundering the Egyptians. One time I was, I was really wanting, I was feeling led to study this one poet, but I knew she was new age and it bothered me. Do you, is anyone tracking with what I'm saying? It bothered me and I just couldn't bring myself to do it. And the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, plunder the Egyptians. And I said, what? Do you know this story? When the Egyptians had the Israelites as slaves, God came in and rescued the Israelites. And on the last day of the last plague, God said, hey, on your way out, just ask them, hey, you, can we have gold? And they'll just give it to you. He didn't say steal it, he said ask. And they took the treasure of Egypt because they were like, yeah, whatever, take what you want, just get out, we can't have you here, fine, if that'll make your God happy. And they threw their jewelry at him. And so they plundered the Egyptians. And the Lord said to me, plunder the Egyptians. That's interesting. So I have a whole sermon that I want to preach one of these days, but not today, where it says, you know, God put Moses in the royal court of Egypt on purpose so he'd get an education in how to set up a nation. Did you know that Psalm 24 mirrors almost exactly earlier pagan poetry written to like Marduk? Of course, it celebrates the true God as the king of glory. Did you know that the architecture of the Jewish tabernacle is almost identical to the earlier pagan architecture of how they set up their temples in Canaan to worship false gods? Apparently, there's some plundering. 
of secular culture being adapted for sacred use. So what is it that makes something Christian? Oh, there's a Christmas tree? That's pagan, y'all. That is a very weak faith person. Sort of person who Paul in the New Testament would say is weak. They don't have a big view of the gospel. They don't have a big view of the grace of God. They, don't, they have a little Jesus and a big devil and they're scared of culture. Quick, pull your kids out of the schools and run to the country and buy land and buy guns. Help! Instead of move to the city like Christians would, move into the hardest parts of the world like Christians would, move into the worst parts of the culture like Christians would, because they know their missionary calling and they're not afraid of being infected. They know their mandate to live as salt and yeast and light to swim upstream. And they're not fighting a culture war. They're not trying to take control. They know the gospel doesn't work that way. So they don't care who's elected. That's not even their vision or value. That's all worldly, weak faith nonsense. They're fighting a different battle. Who's with me? So back to Isaac Watts. Oh, I didn't finish the thought. So what makes it Christian? Is it the form or is it the meaning of the word? It's the words and the motives. That's what makes it Christian. Let's say a musician who's really famous and popular for pagan, very ungodly musical themes becomes a Christian. Does their music suddenly have to start stinking to be Christian? No. Change the words, and it's Christian. Change the words, change the motives. There's people worshiping with heavy metal up in their room, and grandma's like, the devil's in the room. Unless she's an enlightened grandma. Then she'll go, you know, that, that music ain't for me, but that boy's heart loves the Lord. And if heavy metal is how he worships, then praise God for him and praise God for that. We just give up more ground when we do that kind of stuff. We, we, again, we just give up all, this thing, all these wonderful things God made and we give them over to the devil and our little thing, we get painted into a tiny little corner. Are we still okay? So Isaac Watts, this is what he did. He wrote this line in one of his hymns. This is from his hymn, Come We That Love the Lord. Some of you know it immediately. Come we that love the Lord. And so there's this verse. I don't remember which verse it is, but here we go. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God. And they were standing there with their arms crossed, refusing to sing in the room. And he said, I'm going to call you out verbatim. I can see him chuckling with his little candle lamp, writing this with his quill, dipping it in ink, going, I'm going to get him. Let those refuse to sing who never knew our God, but children of the heavenly king, but children of the heavenly king may speak Their joys abroad may speak, their joys up. That's fighting words, bro. He's like, you don't have to pray if you don't know the Lord, but uh... (laughs) God has a different perspective than we do, doesn't he? 
What does it say when Samuel is confused because God has rejected all the impressive looking brothers, sons of Jesse? Remember what the Lord says to Samuel? And he's like, I can't believe it wasn't him. He's so amazingly impressive. It's exactly right, Ray. I don't see what you see. I don't look at what you look at. I, the Lord, I look at the heart. So some people can't, can't hear too good, so they read lips. God chooses not to be deceived by outward things, and he looks at the heart. He's a heart reader. So he doesn't really care if we're singing hymns or praise songs. He doesn't agree with us that that was anointed and that one wasn't. You know what he's interested in? Are your hearts drawing near or not? We could be really getting it done up here musically, but if our hearts aren't in it, he's not into it. Or we could be royally screwing up up here and go, oh my goodness, I can't believe that. But if our heart was to worship him, he's like, that was a good service right there. It's about the motivation. If it's love, if it's adoration, if it's surrender, if it's reverence, if it's really worship, in other words, that's what moves God. He's 100% interested in our hearts. One of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, where he says, look, you can't build a temple glorious enough for me. Heaven is my, is my throne and earth is my footstool. So you're going to build some tiny little thing on earth that's my footstool? Like, come on. My hands have made everything. So you're not going to be able to provide me anything impressive. But then he says, here's who I do abide with. Here's who I live with. The one who is humble and contrite, who trembles at my word. That's my house. I go where that is. Humble, contrite, trembles at my word. I said this earlier, but the same thing that helps one person get in the spirit is often the same thing that quenches the spirit in someone else because of culture, heart language. So we need a lot more humility about our opinions about what is and is not anointed. And we need a lot more insight and understanding into what really causes the spirit of God to move in a house. And it's, I think it's very simple. James chapter four, verse eight. Does anyone know it from memory? Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It really is that simple. So sometimes the music is wrong and it helps, and it, it's so frustrating to us that we don't draw near. Or it's so foreign to us culturally, like it was for me freshman year, that I didn't draw near. I was too busy being offended at their choices to draw near. But after four years of me being changed, which I didn't realize was happening at the time, because they forced me to go. I didn't, I did. You had to get excused absences to have absences at all. Three times a week. Why does it take so much chapel? I mean, we're already studying Bible in our classes. Oh, so stupid. Shut up, flesh. You're in the flesh. That's just the flesh. What does the Bible say to do with the flesh if you're a Christian? Oh, we're supposed to kill it? Because in America, the customer's always right. (laughs) Have it your way. Did you know having it your way is hell on earth? You in charge of you is hell. It's the definition of hell on earth. And you do it forever, it becomes hell. You become the kind of person who would hate heaven if they could go. 
So even if you prayed a sinner's prayer, the fact that the kingdom of self is still what you're living under means you will go to hell because heaven would be hell to you. Sinner's prayer ain't gonna save you. You know what's gonna save you? Surrender to Jesus. Oh. Oh. Now, sinner's prayer can be a nice time for you to surrender to Jesus. So use that, that's fine. But I heard a dumb quote the other week. Somebody asked me, I heard a preacher say that you can be saved but not a Christian. And I thought, ah, oh, help me, I'm gonna yell. <laughs> I just, you know, short version. No, you can't. We need a lot more humility and we need a lot more insight into the reality that God is not hung up on the cultural stuff we're hung up on. All right, I'll be honest. I sympathize with the criticisms. I sympathize with the criticisms of modern worship. Sometimes it is really simplistic and sometimes it is too repetitive for me, okay? And sometimes we just play the greatest hits over and over until I wish there would be a rapture, you know? <laughs> just save me from this endless service of... So I'm sympathetic, but you gotta also realize this, you hymn people who love only hymns. You gotta realize this. We've had hundreds of years to filter out the bad ones. And there is a lot of bad ones. They just, we don't sing them. Give us a couple hundred years. Most of the stuff we sing today is, we're not going to remember it. We hardly sing songs from 30 years ago. So come on, man, cut us a little slack. At least we're trying. What are you doing? Going back to your greatest hits and abandoning art. Okay, I'm a little salty, aren't I? Really, here's what I want to say. It's like Jesus said every student who is truly discipled will be like someone who brings old treasures and new treasures out of their storehouse. Whether we're talking about Bible and theology, whether we're talking about things you learned in earlier seasons of your life, whether you're talking about insights you gleaned from people who are 100 years old, or whether we're talking about music. A mature perspective is able to draw treasures old and new. So the old stuff, some of that old stuff's amazing. But that new stuff, some of that new stuff is fresh and amazing. And don't you remember when he actually commanded us to sing unto the Lord a? Oh, yeah, that's right. A noose, that's in the book. That's right there in the book. I'm done. Conclusion. We live in amazing days. I didn't talk about King James only because I cut like a whole page out of my notes where I basically uh, say sometimes these same people who are like, only the hymns, they're the same people who are like, only the King James. And uh, talk to me later about why that's a dumb idea. Really dumb. But we got to get humble and happy. Humble and happy. Like my wife has told me at key points along our journey, get over yourself. <laughs> when I do, when I get over myself, it's amazing, which takes humility to get over yourself. Because your perspective, my perspective is so important to me. It's what I think, it's what I feel, and everyone should bend to it, because may my will be done. Oh, my goodness. Whoo! Get off my throne, son. You ain't God. When we get over ourselves, when we get humble, it's so much easier to get happy. If you notice this, pride makes you miserable. You have nothing to learn from anyone, and you're in your way, tripping over your own stuff holding on to your resentments and claiming to be right. I'm 
I'm so right. If the world would just agree with me, we could save the world. At the same time, making mistake after mistake and not just tripping over your own feet, but hurting everyone else you fall on top of. Yep. But when you get humble and you get happy, there's like a feast to be had. The flowers are blooming. The birds are singing. The cats are vomiting on the desk. But one day we'll get to heaven, whether we liked it or not, one day we'll get to heaven and, oh no, those things that we were so offended with are in heaven. Those people we look down on are there and they're playing that heavy metal. Every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every language, every culture, one spirit, one family, one blood, one righteousness, one voice. Why not just get in ahead of the curve and get humble and happy and enjoy the feast now. And that's my whole sermon. Thank you so much for your time. May God get the glory from us now and forever as we sing. Amen. Amen.